This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hi, I'm Dr. Margaret. Welcome or welcome back to Self Work. I'm a clinical psychologist. I've been in private practice for a little over 20 years in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And I began this podcast a little over four months ago with the intent of trying to reach people that, one, might never walk through a therapist's door, but two, also to reach people who might like to hear what a therapist has to say about emotional issues or mental illness. So that's why I'm here. I have a very direct, down-to-earth approach to mental illness or mental health problems, and that's what I'm trying to convey to you. Today, we're going to be talking about when you aren't safe in a relationship, basically domestic violence. I'm going to tell you the story of how I began working as a psychologist by volunteering at the Batter Women's Shelter in Dallas, and how that experience affected me. If you've never, hopefully, been in a shelter It is a dramatic and explosive place. It's a place for healing, but it's also very complicated. The whole issue of domestic violence is very complicated. I'm going to report some figures on domestic abuse, but we're not going to talk today necessarily about all the factors that keep a woman or a man involved in a violent relationship, whether that violence is emotional, sexual, or physical. But I am going to give you an exercise that we taught volunteers at the Battered Women's Shelter on how to develop more empathy with a victim, why she or he doesn't leave, so that we don't judge, we don't evaluate without trying to walk in someone's shoes. Then the last thing we're going to talk about is an email from a listener about a post I, and she actually saw of mine on the Huffington Post, about hidden depression, but she wanted to know how you go about finding a therapist. So I have some ideas for her. I don't know if I've mentioned on this podcast as of yet that I was actually a professional vocalist in my 20s. I sang jazz at night and jingles during the day. That was in Dallas, Texas. And yet, by the time I reached 38... I had my PhD in clinical psychology. It was quite a journey, actually. I began it by volunteering at the Battered Women's Shelter in Dallas. I was singing jazz at the Fairmont Hotel Bar, actually, and my night went end around 1 o'clock, and they needed someone to man their crisis line from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. Well, I was up. I'd also experienced abuse myself, and there will be a link in the show notes if you'd like to read about that. So it seemed like a great fit. And I began really what would change my life forever. I ended training other volunteers and staying and getting on their board. But most importantly, I got to know the women. This particular shelter was only for women. I watched as one girl who had been thrown out of a pickup truck going, I don't know, 50 miles an hour, breaking her leg. I watched her go back. I listened while on the crisis line, men would scream over the phone, Quit protecting that whore of a wife and tell me where the damn shelter is. I'm coming to get her. That wife would stay a few days, get a sweet call from the same man, and return home. I heard the shelter director talk to countless women who were going back about how to protect themselves from the worst of what could happen to them. 
literally, if he gets mad when you serve green beans, don't serve green beans. Of course, it's far from that easy. Other women, however, swore that they weren't going back. In my 20 years of practice now, I've worked with many women who have been screamed at and belittled, pushed around, shoved, slapped, whatever. And they quietly go about getting things in order. They develop an exit plan and they leave. There's also uh, a link in the show notes to developing an exit plan. Now, let me quickly say that men also suffer violence in relationships. It's usually more verbal. However, it can be physical. And their wives have spit out horribly cruel things and violently raged against them, destroyed things of theirs, lied about being hurt themselves. And they can come to a point where after years of this abuse, they've had it and they leave. But what is so hard about leaving? There's a great book called The Battered Women's Syndrome. It's actually several years old. And in it, the author talks a lot about the shame that is carried by victims of domestic abuse. The first time it happened, you didn't do anything or you were paralyzed or you can even feel like you allowed it to happen. And certainly the persecutor is going to tell you it was your fault. So there is a shame that begins to creep up that you feel like you're creating the abusive cycle just as much as your perpetrator. You can also feel like it's really only happening to you, that no one else would allow themselves to be abused. No one else would allow themselves to be screamed at. And yet, the statistics in our country definitely show that one in four women are abused, one in seven men, that there are three murders of women daily. I'm taking these from domestic violence statistics in the Huffington Post, which there is a link in the show notes. And so you are far from alone. In fact, next time you're sitting in a class or going to church, look around you and think, wow, 25% of these women have somehow been abused. And what? Between 15 and 20% of the men. Just think about that. It's staggering. You can also discount the abuse that's occurring. I remember a woman I worked with many years ago, and she had gotten out of her marriage. Her ex-husband was a coach and was very beloved in the community. And she had divorced and taken her two sons to go live with her family and actually work in the family business. Since then, she'd gained weight. She wasn't happy doing what she was doing. And the boys really missed their dad. So she began thinking, well, you know, maybe I made a mistake. It wasn't all that bad. Everybody else likes him. And that can be common in domestic violence, that the person for others is a great guy, well-liked. And he or she is not violent with anyone else. But you get them at home, and there are huge problems. But to continue the story, I had her on a weekend that she didn't have her kids. I had her call over her best friends, her family, and they sat down and shared a bottle of wine. And she said to them, okay, tell me what you remember from the last four or five years of my marriage to my ex-husband. So she came back to therapy the next time, and there were tears in her eyes. And she said, I had forgotten. I'd forgotten the names that he'd called me. I didn't realize that some of these things that were happening were really all that bad. They were my normal And that's what happens in domestic abuse. Have you ever been in a hot tub and 
someone walks by and they say, is the water hot? You go, oh, no, it's fine. And then they get in and it, they have to get out because it's so warm. That's what it's like to be a victim of domestic violence. You become accustomed or accommodated to the chaos of your life. So right now, I want to go to an exercise that we did with volunteers who trained at the shelter to try to help people, just like I had. I'd certainly gone through their training. And this was to help them gain understanding of why people don't leave. We'd spent the day together, and we had kind of a camaraderie. We told our own stories and knew the reasons we were invested in helping victims. And it actually, if you can, might be interesting for you to try the exercise yourself. I don't know if you're driving or walking, but if you're just sitting and listening to this, you might actually write things down. Here we go. First, write down the three most valuable things in your life. Put them on three separate pieces of paper. It could be your faith. It could be a child or a pet. It could be your integrity or your honesty. It could be a partner or a spouse. But it has to be your top three things. Things that you really couldn't live without. And then we'd wait a few minutes. Now, to give you a picture, everyone has three little pieces of paper folded in their laps. Got it? Okay. Now, imagine that you're on a boat with all the other people sitting in this room. You've been told it is a safe boat and you're traveling a long way. So you have three pieces of luggage with you, symbolized by those three pieces of paper in your hands. But the boat is in trouble. It turns out that it's way too heavy. Not everyone will survive unless you throw one piece of luggage overboard. Some people in the room would gasp and some might smile a little nervously. So please fold up one piece of paper and throw it away. Now, it was so interesting to see what really happened during this exercise. Sometimes everyone would be able to throw at least one piece away. Sometimes someone would refuse. But remember, You'll be responsible for all these people losing their life if you don't throw a piece of luggage overboard. Most reluctantly, threw one piece overboard. Then we repeated the same instructions, but for the second piece of luggage. And I tell you, there was usually out-and-out mutiny. By the third, there were tears, shock, demoralization, rage, submission. And here's the point. This was a conceptual, guided visualization, not real life. And yet people were so upset. Maybe even you sitting and listening to this, if you did the exercise, have also been affected in this way. It was very dramatic. But it helped the volunteers understand just what was at stake for these victims. They may fear that they'll lose things that are very dear to them, maybe even intrinsic to who they are. And for what? Will their lives really be different or will they be worse? Their emotions run deep as they consider how or when they've been told over and over and over that they're at fault. They're ashamed they didn't leave the first time the abuse happened, as I said a few minutes ago, or the second or the third. And if they go, they'll feel responsible for everyone's life changing, even the life of their perpetrator, whom they often still love. Plus, All the research indicates this. They know that their abuser may escalate if they leave and become more violent toward the victim, toward the children, or toward themselves. They may threaten suicide. The perpetrator may do anything they can to try to control the situation. The victim may have acted as a protector or a buffer for the children. 
and what's going to happen if a divorce occurs and she or he isn't there to protect the kids. She'll watch him load up the kids in the car and take them away. And maybe he has a horrible drinking problem or maybe he's just a violent person and she'll be helpless to help those kids. That same Huffington Post article about domestic violence statistics pointed this out, and I'm quoting, The number of American troops killed in Afghanistan and Iraq between 2001 and 2012 was 6,488. The number of American women who were murdered by current or ex-male partners during that time was 11,766. The danger to the woman or man, but mostly women, is astounding. The care it takes, the change in the dynamic of the way you feel about yourself, there's so much that has to change on so many levels, financially, relationally, spiritually, pragmatically, emotionally. And all of those changes have to occur before someone can be ready to leave. It's far from easy. It is possible. There are shelters all over this country that will be there for you and will help you. And if you're male and in an abusive relationship, there's help out there too. I'll have some of those links available in the show notes. So if you are one of these people or you love someone who's suffering from abuse, please help them find the support they need or you find the support and the comfort and the guidance that you need. I've shared with you that I was in an abusive marriage. It was mostly emotional abuse, but there was occasional physical abuse as well. And I actually still loved him when I left him or when I asked for divorce. It was a very, very difficult transition. And to detach from my caring took years and to rediscover my sense of self-esteem took a very long time to do as well. The things that I had absorbed about myself, such as when he would say, you better stick with me because if anybody really knew who you were, you'd be rejected. It was those kinds of comments that seared into my emotional soul, so to speak. And it takes a long time to shed those memories and to build a different kind of life. But I know it can be done. I did it with the help of a good therapist or two, a wonderful support group of friends, and my family. Good luck to you if you're in the same boat that I was and that hundreds of thousands of other people are. Now I'm going to read an email from a reader, as we do in every podcast. Hi, Dr. Margaret. You obviously don't know me, and I only know what I read about you on your Facebook page. I came across your article in the Huffington Post, and it hit a chord with me. This is the article on perfectly hidden depression. I don't like to admit this might be me, but certain things you've written have been things I've said word for word. I've been surrounded by people with anxiety throughout my life, and compared to everyone else, I never thought about it much because I had it so easy compared to others. I've talked to my boyfriend about it, and he's encouraged me to talk to someone about whatever this is to see if I would feel better. My biggest issue is I don't know who to seek out, what to talk about, or where to begin. I find myself anxious at times for no real good reason and agree this probably isn't the most healthy way to live. And then she said some other things that were very nice, which I appreciated. So let's talk about what it's like to find a therapist. You have to reveal, which for some people is very, very difficult, 
But you can ask your family doctor, your lawyer, your pastor, your OBGYN. All will likely have names of people that they've referred to in the past. Or ask your friends. You might be surprised how many of them have had therapy or know someone who has. There are also local therapeutic organizations. My local one is the Psychologist of Northwest Arkansas. And within those, you can find a therapist website or at least some information about what they specialize in. Let's talk about cost a little bit. If money's an issue and you don't have insurance, you can consider a free health clinic. They'll often have mental health services. Try a graduate school program. I saw probably 30, 40 patients when I was in graduate school, and I hope I did decent work with them. I was obviously still learning, but I wanted to help and was trying very hard to help. Plus, I was being supervised by people who knew what they were doing and could guide me. There are also community mental health organizations that have sliding fee scales. I worked in one of those here in our community for several years. If therapists don't take insurance, which many don't, make sure they give you the information you need to file yourself. That includes what's called a diagnosis code and a session code. Then when you're approaching a therapist, be proactive. Ask them questions. How do you work? What's the average number of sessions you have for a problem like mine? Tell them you'd like to talk to them for a few minutes before making an appointment, before you're paying them anything to listen to you. If they don't do it, you know, my guess would be that might not be a therapist I'd want to go to in the first place. So you have to be assertive and advocate for yourself. There are so many people that feel as if their problems aren't big enough somehow or serious enough or important enough to actually talk to a therapist about. However, Sometimes that can be a defensive strategy as well, in and of itself, as I've talked about with perfectly hidden depression. If you're interested in that particular concept, I do have two episodes on that, episodes three and four. And there is a free ebook that I have written on my website. All you have to do is subscribe to my website and you'll get a copy of the free ebook. And it's called Seven Commandments of Good Therapy. And it talks about how you know you've got a competent therapist, what you can expect, good business practices, the kind of relationship you want, etc. So I hope that's helpful. I want to thank you for joining me today on self-work. There are lots of ways of getting in touch with me. I have a website, drmargaretrutherford.com. I have an email that I answer all the time as quickly as I can. It's askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. I'm on Twitter at Dr. Underscore Margaret. And if you're in the Northwest Arkansas area, give me a call, 479-443-3413. Some of you are reviewing and rating my podcast, and I so appreciate that. It really does help me, especially in iTunes, so that other people can see this particular podcast a little more readily. So thanks so much for doing that. The review is more complicated. But gosh, if a couple of you would do that, it would mean so much to me. Thanks. And one last request. I'd love for you to subscribe. My subscriptions are growing, and that's great to see and keeps me motivated. So thanks so much. In my next podcast, I'll be talking about how couples get into trouble and what they can do about it. I'll be using especially John Gottman's work. He and his wife, Julie Gottman, are famous researchers in the marital field. So I hope you'll tune in and listen. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford, and you've been listening to Self Work.